Diocese of Davenport, Vision 2020, Convocation, June 6th through the 8th, 2019, at St. Ambrose University, Davenport, Iowa. General Session Speaker, The Art of Accompaniment, Sharing That Christ is Alive Through Relationships, Katie Prejohn McGrady, June 7th, 2019. Copyright 2019, Diocese of Davenport. Good morning. I haven't done anything yet. You don't need to clap. I'm excited to be with y'all. I love coming to Iowa. We have a little tiny town about 45 minutes, not even 45, it's like 20 minutes from my hometown called Iowa, which is the French version of how you say your state's name. So when I told people back home, oh yeah, I'm headed up to Iowa, they'd correct me. No, you're going to Iowa. No, 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 I'm headed to Iowa like the state. There's a state called Iowa. We're 48th in the nation for education, so we're working on it. <laughs> Geography was not a required course when I was a student. I am so excited and honored to be with you. If any of you are on social media, don't follow me on there. All I do is get in fights with people about shoulders. Some of you know what I'm referencing. Um, and I post photos of my little girl all over Instagram, so you're welcome to follow me there. But I, I get to travel the country talking about Jesus. People, for some reason, pay me to do it, and it pays the bills. And my husband and I were able to just buy a new house so that I have an office so that I don't have to do this anymore. But I am really, really excited to get to talk with you today about how we are each called to be not just the hands and feet of Jesus Christ, but to be the voice and the mouthpiece of proclaiming the gospel, especially to young people who are beginning to disaffiliate in numbers that are quite alarming and scaring. So just to give you a snapshot, I'm going to depress you and then I'm going to excite you. We're going to look at the landscape and then we're going to come up with a plan on how we can attack this together as Catholics, how we can approach what we are meant to do. I want to be able to see my slides so I'm not totally off the mark over here. Um, I've written three books, like she mentioned. The only sales pitch that I'll give you is that you can find them on Amazon and put my kid through college someday. Um, and I'm really excited. The one in the middle, Follow Your Lifelong Adventure with Jesus, which I wrote for teenagers to be able to figure out how they can grow in relationship with Christ, just won an award yesterday. It was voted uh, number one in its category for the Association of Catholic Publishers. So I get to say that I'm an award-winning author. Thank you. Stop, please, stop. Just thank you. Um, but you can find those online. My husband and I are also, uh, we, we have a podcast called The Electric Waffle. Um, we talk about the office in Parks and Rec and Catholicism. So it's great. It's fun. We have a really good time doing it. And we have together also created the cutest child on the face of the planet. This is our daughter, Rose. She's almost two years old. Thank you for your support and prayers as we figure out how to handle a kid that has discovered climbing is a thing, and she can now sit on the back of the couch, which is not up against the wall. So we will probably have ER trips in our future. Um, Rose is the greatest little girl. She has joy and delight and excitement, the likes of which I didn't think a kid could have. Um, I was kind of like an Eeyore-ish kid, like I was just kind of, you know, quiet, and, and I like to sit in the corner and read my books. My husband's like Tigger, so you put the two of us together, and out comes Rose, who wants to greet people by showing them her belly button, and that's what she does. She walks up to you, she throws her shirt up, and she points at her belly button, and then she expects to see yours, because that's how we know that we're humans together, and it works great until you're in the communion line, and she does it in front of Father, as he's, you know, distributing Jesus. We were just in Mass this past Sunday, and everything from applauding at the end of the communion hymn, right, yay, like cheering for the choir, who were not that good, and then as Father was walking back up the aisle, she runs after him, because it's our dear friend Father Trey, who baptized her, and she knows him, and he turns around, and he has a beard now, and she hadn't seen him in a few weeks, and she ran crying, 
because that was not her father Trey with a young baby face. This was some mean giant man with, with a big beard. She loves Chick-fil-A. We often go there and just feed her french fries. I know that's not probably on the approved you know, kids list, but it keeps her happy, and it keeps mommy sane and gets us out of the house. When I think about my daughter, and when I think about the future of our church today, the work that I'm trying to do, the work that you're trying to do, the work that we are all doing in the vineyard is for her. I'm a millennial, so our generation's a lost cause. Don't even worry about us. Gen Z, the current crop of high school and young college students, we, we still have a chance, I think, to engage and get them back on the same page of faith. But my daughter's generation, what some are calling Gen A, Generation Alpha, we just had to like start back over in the alphabet at this point, right? That generation is growing up in a time and in a world and in a church that we don't know what it's going to look like in the next few years, right? We're ever ancient and ever new. Our truths are not going to change, but the way we articulate those truths has to. The way we engage with the people sitting in our pews, 95 or almost two, and everything in between, wants to be there and shows up all the time and was drugged there by their mom or goes because they don't really know what else they would have to do on a Sunday morning besides brunch. My generation has turned brunch into our worship. And I can't always complain. Bottomless mimosas are a good thing. I like them. They are almost sacramental. But we have to figure out a way to articulate that mass comes first and then we go get the bacon and eggs, right? That Jesus should be the center of our lives because he is who we are drawn to relationship with. And so what I wanna do is, I want you to turn to the people right next to you for just a second. I'm that kind of a speaker. Mike Patan trained me, so I'm sorry. I want you to turn to the people right next to you and I want you to share with them your 15 second definition of the famous Catholic buzzword. If you're playing bingo, you'll have your bingo card filled by the end of it. What is accompaniment to you? What does that word mean to you? Not the formal definition that you could go find on the dictionary, not what you were taught in your theology class. You, as a Catholic in 2019, what does accompaniment mean to you? Ready, go. All right. I didn't see anybody cheating by pulling their phones out, so that's good. We're going to popcorn style. One person from over here, what's accompaniment? Accompaniment. Being in step with each other. Very good. I like that. Somebody from the center. Companionship. Companionship. Good. Over here. What was that? Connections. All right. Somebody else. At this point, it's free range. Yeah. Meeting each other where we're at, wherever that may be. Yeah. Somebody else. Friendship. What was that? Unification. Unity. Absolutely. Somebody from in here. Sticking with people through thick and thin. One more. Yes, sir. Okay, there you go. I was waiting for somebody. It's the music that accompanies the voices, right? Absolutely. I used the word in the definition. My English teachers would hate me. Right, we could spend the entire time crafting a definition of accompaniment together. And, and you should. You should go back into your parishes. You should go back into your staffs. You should just go back into the, the dining room table at your family's home and sit down and come up with together what does accompaniment look like and mean in your life and according to the situations that you face? I'm 29 years old, I'm a young mom, I've been married for three years, I just bought a house. Accompaniment in my life right now, I need somebody to teach me how to make sure my budget stays on point so I don't you know, default on my mortgage. That's what accompaniment would look like in my life right now. Versus when I was 21 and fresh out of college and getting my first job in the church, it looked very different. The person who comes to math, mass every single Sunday 
and wants to be there, accompaniment with them is going to look very different than the person who was drugged there kicking and screaming. It's going to look different than the person who's there because they don't know what else to do. Right? We have to figure out and we have to articulate to one another in a very honest way. And sometimes we Catholics, we get nervous about this. We get uncomfortable when we call ourselves out because, you know, we like, we like the rhythm and we like the roteness and we like the routine. But accompaniment calls us to get a little bit out of those comfort zones and actually pay attention to the person right in front of us, not just the program that we've written onto a paper. It forces us to pay attention to the individuals who are asking questions, who are confused and hurting, who are on fire and passionate and sometimes have way too many ideas and you just don't know what to do with them, and how we can love that individual into deeper relationship with Jesus Christ. It's relationship with someone so they are inspired to grow in relationship with the Lord. Back in December of uh, 2017, my daughter was four months old, and, and you should know something about Rose. She's adorable and cute and loves to dance, and I might show you a video later in one of my workshops, but, but when she was little, she was little. She was itty-bitty. She had pyloric stenosis, so she was the exorcist baby. She puked constantly. We had to buy new furniture not long after she was born because it was covered and baby spit up. She was having a really hard time breastfeeding, so we'd started to supplement with formula, and so naturally, as a millennial mom, I felt like a complete and total failure. And I was sitting in my living room on lawn furniture because we were waiting for the new couches to be delivered, and they were delayed. And I was watching Parenthood. I don't know if you ever watched that show on Netflix. It's an old NBC show that's just a complete and total tearjerker. It was my new baby show, right? Like, your hormones are all out of whack, so you just need to cry. So I would watch this show basically on repeat, hating my life and loving my kid. It was a very confusing time. And my phone rang, and it was an unknown number. And the phone, phone call comes through, and I think it might be the furniture delivery guys. So I answer the phone, and I'm a little gruff, like, hello? And the person goes, is this Katie Prejean McGrady? And I go, yeah, it is. Do you have my couches? Because again, unknown number, and I'm assuming it's the delivery guy. And I'm not, I usually just don't answer phones, you know? I'm a millennial, we don't answer phones, just text me. But I answered the phone. And on the other end, there's this long, quiet pause, and the person goes, ah, no, this is Bishop Glenn John Provo of the Diocese of Lake Charles. So that's great. I just yelled at my bishop. I go, I am so sorry, Bishop Provo. I, um, he's like, is this a bad time? I was like, uh, yes, it is, because right at that moment, I felt something warm and sticky on my shirt. And I looked down, and I realized that the Taco Bell I'd eaten the night before, my daughter had probably just eaten as well, and so now was coming down my shirt and the bishop is called, and I'm covered in baby poop, and I just yelled at him on the phone, all around, just a bad moment. So I say, yes, can you call me back in like 10 minutes? And he goes, why don't you just call me when you're ready? Click, like phone, like I'm sure he like ran away from the phone at that point. And so for the next 10, 15 minutes, I'm cleaning my daughter up, I'm cleaning myself up, I'm thinking to myself, why is the bishop calling me? Like I'm a lay woman that doesn't work for a parish or a school, like I just travel, maybe he's calling to tell me I'm a heretic and like I'm not allowed to travel anymore. Like my mind immediately goes to the worst possible scenario, the bishop calls you. I know that's not always the case, but the bishop calls and I thought I was in trouble. So I finally call him back. I go, Bishop, again, I am, I am so very sorry. What, what can I do for you today? And he goes, well, Katie, I just got off the phone with uh, Cardinal Tobin also kind of a scary thing, right? Like, why are bishops and cardinals talking about me on the phone? Are they upset that my daughter doesn't breastfeed? Like, what's going on? And he goes, and I, I just I had a conversation with him and some people over at the USCCB, and uh, I just wanted you to know that I gave my approval for you to get to go to uh, the pre-synod 
um, on young people in March of 2018. And there was a long pause, and I go, um, Bishop, what's a, what's a pre-synod? And he goes, I don't know, but you got an all-expense-paid trip to the Vatican, so you might as well say yes. Okay, great. So a few months later, I found myself on a plane flying to Rome. I'd said goodbye to my husband and my daughter, and I was leaving for 10 days to go for a meeting that not a whole lot of us knew what was going to happen. We knew there were going to be 300 young adults there. We knew that other people were picking up the bill. We knew that we were going to have roommates. My roommate was from communist China. That was incredible. I've got stories for days about the conversations we were able to have. But on the first day of our gathering, Pope Francis came to visit us. And we'd been told that we had to arrive in the auditorium. And it was kind of an auditorium similar to this. We had these bright yellow chairs, and it was hideous, but Italian. So they were, you know, it was very bright and exciting in the room. We were told we had to get there for 7.30 and that the Pope was going to arrive between 8.30 9 o'clock. We had to turn in our passports to get the little translator devices. So the Americans, there were three of us from the USCCB. We had a seminarian, a religious sister, a religious brother, and a couple of people from dioceses. There are about eight or nine Americans total. We've shoved our way to the front, right in the second row, because we're going to be there when the Pope arrives. Pope Francis is supposed to arrive between 8.30 and 9. He pulls up at 8.15 because he's the Pope, and he can do that kind of thing. And so the choir that was up on the stage that was going to like sing the Pope in with all the pomp and circumstance weren't up there because they were just milling around the crowd. And Pope Francis just walks in like shaking hands and taking pictures and giving high fives. Not really, but in my heart, I imagine he was giving high fives. <laughs> and like all of us are just like, oh, that's the Pope. That's the vicar of Christ. That's the successor of Peter. And he's like 15 feet away from me. So he's getting closer, he's getting closer, he's getting closer. My friend Christopher was standing behind me and Christopher had arrived to Rome a couple days early and he bought a Zucchetto so he could trade with Pope Francis. And he's, he's standing, and that's a thing. Like, you can, like, give the Pope one, and, like, he give, but there's no protocol. Like, do you just, like, pop it off his head and, like, put one back on? Is there, like, an Italian version of the word swapsies? Like, how do you, so, like, Chris is, and Chris is, like, six feet tall. Like, he's towering over all of us, and he's getting, he doesn't know what he's supposed to do. So I just, I'm like, you know what, just, just, like, make eye contact with him and, like, hold it up or show it to him. Or, like, maybe one of the Swiss guards will, like, see it. And they were, like, in their civvies, so they're even more terrifying when they're not in the funny-looking outfit and they could kill you with their pinky. So, like, he doesn't want to look at them. And so he's getting closer, he's getting closer, he's getting closer. And I know that in this moment, this is the closest I'm ever going to be to the Pope. The closest I'm ever going to be to Pope Francis. And I have to do something. Like, do I jump out and give him a hug? Do I, like, do I, like, yell at him? I love you! Like, I don't know, like, what? Like, your heart is beating, and you're excited, and, you, and he's getting closer, he's getting closer, he's getting closer. And I realize I'm three seats in. I'm not close enough to touch him without shoving somebody. And you're the only person that's allowed to shove somebody to see the Pope is a nun, and I missed that boat. So, like, I... The rules do not... So, like, I don't know what I'm going to do. He's getting closer, he's getting closer, he's getting closer. And so I decide to snap a selfie with the Pope. And I was so excited because it like broke Catholic Instagram. Like it got like 3,000 likes in a couple hours and, and it was a big deal. I was that close to the Pope. I got my selfie with Pope Francis. I got home the next week. My husband had framed it and put it up on the wall next to our wedding photo. Like I married my husband. I had a kid. I met the Pope. I can die. I'm good, right? Like the trifecta. But then next to the selfie was another photo that my husband had framed. And it was the official Vatican photograph of this picture being taken. And I just want you to take a look at everybody smiling at the Pope. And where am I but with my back to the Vicar of Christ? So yeah, I need to be accompanied. Who wants to walk with me on the journey?
I, uh, I love it. I love it. Everybody's happy to see him. Cardinal Baldessari looks like he's going to cut me. I mean, the whole... Right? I was, it was a joyful day, though. Pope Francis spent four hours with us. And if you know anything about a bishop or a pope or a cardinal's schedule, you know that four hours is a lot of time. And he spent four hours sitting at the front of the room talking to 300 young adults from around the world about what he wanted us to do and the task that he was laying out before us, which was to spend the next week discussing 15 questions and writing a letter to the bishops of the world about the state of young adults and youth in the world today. What we think about Jesus, what forms our identity, what questions we have about faith, what we perceive the church to be like, how we want to serve the church. And he was very honest with us. He told us, this is not a political ploy. This is not merely a showboat thing. If it was, they wouldn't have spent hundreds of thousands of euros flying us all out there and and hosting us for a week and feeding us incredible food and busing us all around Rome and having this opportunity for us to talk. It was an investment in conversation. And he said something in that gathering there while we were all in this room, moments after I got to take the selfie, he said this to us, young people must be taken seriously. It seems that we are surrounded by a culture that on the one hand idolizes youth, trying to prevent its passing, it, on the other excludes many young people from being protagonists. I think a lot of us in this room know exactly what he's talking about, that we're all like, yes, we need a youth group, yes, we need youth ministry, yes, we need young people to have a vocal voice in the church, But no, we don't want them to do anything but, you know, like pass the baskets because they might mess something up, right? We want to drag them along rather than walk alongside. And he continued, the gospel asks us, its message of closeness invites us to encounter and exchange, to accept each other seriously, to journey together, and to share without fear. Everybody wants to rabble-rouse that the word accompaniment doesn't have a definition. Yes, it does, and he gave it to us while we sat in that room in Vatican City. 300 young adults gathered together. That is what we are called to do, to encounter and exchange, to journey closely together, to share without fear of judgment, to ask questions without the fear of being berated because we dared to ask, to explore and to try to understand without the worry that somebody's going to fuss at us. I learned recently that the word fuss is a very, like, Cajun term. Do you all say that? Like, my mama fussed at me. It's like you're wagging your finger, right? There's a lot of Catholics that like to fuss. They're walking around with ashes on their forehead all the time, and they're mad if you smile in mass because that's Jesus, and the cross was no picnic, Prejean. The last time I checked, he didn't stay in the tomb, right? If we're sharing without fear, if we're journeying together, if we're encountering and we're exchanging, we're accompanying. We're walking alongside. We're walking together. So many of us want to approach the problem of accompaniment. And I'm going to call it a problem because we're not doing it very well right now. We want to approach the problem of accompaniment by asking, okay, well, well, why won't people let me accompany them? Or why aren't they coming to church in the first place? Or what's keeping them from being there? Back in the early 2000s, there were these two guys. Their names were Kevin and Mike. They'd gone to school on the East Coast. They got their MBAs. They were kind of tech nerds. And so they move out to Palo Alto, Northern California, and they decide they're going to change the world by inventing an app. Right? Darn millennials. We think that we can change the world by inventing an app. So they move out there, and they create an app. They call it bourbon, not the delicious drink that you're all going to enjoy tonight. But bourbon, B-U-R-B-N. And the app was super simple. That's what it looked like. You download it on your iPhone or your Android phone, and it was a check-in app. So like I could go to the subway up the street across from the Radisson, and I could check in and share with all the people that followed me on Bourbon 
that that's where I was. And then if, let's say that the tuna sandwich that I got was really good, I could like give a short little review, like, oh, this particular subway had, you know, she gave me extra tuna and she smiled at me from behind the counter, she was really nice, you should go there, like four stars. So it was like a digital mobile Yelp, if you remember Yelp from back in the day. But they wanted it to just be on your phone, it was purely on your device in your hand. And they throw it up on the App Store, and like six, 7,000 people download it, and they're starting to get a little more traction with it, and it's starting to get a little more popular, but they kind of plateaued at about 10,000 downloads, which in the world of, of app downloads is not really that much. And so they think in their head, well, we're not getting more people because we don't have enough money to advertise, so we need to find investors. So they start looking around for, for you know, venture capitalists, people that can throw money into their endeavor. And they meet with a bunch of different venture capitalists, and every single one, says the exact same thing. This doesn't need to exist. Nobody wants to see where you are and what you're eating and, and what coffee shop you visited. Like, this is a pointless app. I'm not giving you money for something that's never gonna take off. And so every venture capitalist shut the door in their face. But then they met this one guy named Andy. And Andy sat down with Kevin and Mike, like the most generic names in the world, right? Kevin, Mike, and Andy are sitting in this Starbucks. And they're showing him their design deck, they're telling him the specs, they're explaining to him how they want their app to grow, what they think they can do with the cash infusion. And Andy leans back in his chair, and he goes, boys, look, it's not a bad idea. I'll write you a $250,000 check right now if you can answer this question. Why aren't more people downloading it? If it's so good, why do you only have 10,000 users? What's keeping people from actually using this app? Kevin and Mike's, their faces kind of fall, and their shoulders slump, and they're like, you know, Andy, we, we're asking ourselves the exact same question. We just don't know. We don't know why more people aren't downloading the app. Andy closes his notebook, he pushes his chair back, he stands up, he goes, boys, that was a trick question, and you just failed. You're asking the wrong question. Call me back when you ask the right question. And he walked out. And there went $250,000 out the door. Their last chance. They can't make rent, they can't pay for the server space, they have no more money to market. This is it, this is the end of their dreams, they're gonna have to pack up and move back into their parents' basements in Boston. This is the end of the road, their dream is dead. So they go back to their apartment that night, they picked up some real bottles of bourbon on the way, they're drowning their sorrows, they're sitting in their apartment, they've got a whiteboard pulled out because, you know, they're coding nerds and that's what they have, and they're sitting there and they're asking themselves again and again and again, why aren't more people downloading this? This is a good thing, why aren't more people using it? And in the words of Mr. Miyagi sitting there in that Starbucks, right, you're asking the wrong question, right? They've been yoded as they were sitting in there. It comes back into their head, and they realize they're asking the wrong question. Maybe the right question could change everything. Maybe if they were unafraid to push the envelope just a little bit, maybe if they actually asked the right question, they'd be able to get to the right answers, which would allow them to grow the app. And they realized that they were asking why people weren't downloading the app, as opposed to asking why are people that use it every single day loving it. They needed to flip it. Ask it from the positive perspective. You've got 10,000 users and the metrics showed that people kept coming back, that people kept returning to post where they were and to show the coffee that they were drinking and to give reviews of these subways. So they started making phone calls. A lot of their friends were using the app. They started asking, what do you like about it? What's really great about this? Why do you use this over other things? They, they started sending out these email surveys to people that they didn't know, and overwhelmingly, the answer came back that it was the first time that a digital app existed that allowed people to share photos of what they were doing. See, back in the day, we all remember that Facebook 
used to not be for political arguments, but you would have to upload your photos through a cord, remember? And Twitter was merely just like your random thoughts, not what it has turned into, right? But this was the first app that existed that allowed somebody to show a picture, and that was it. And they realized they don't have a check-in app, and they don't have a review app. They have an instant photographic telegram, and they rebrand Bourbon into Instagram. They took it off the app store, they three months to completely and totally rewire it. Within the first three months that they put it back up on the app store, a million people downloaded it. To this day, 650 million users post 94 million photos a day on Instagram. It is the number one downloaded social media app on the app store. When you talk to teenagers and you ask them what app they prefer, it usually goes Snapchat and then Instagram. Old people are on Facebook, politicians are on Twitter. That's really about it, right? Like, that's, <laughs> that's how they make the discussion. When we think about the fact that Instagram has literally, whether you want to admit it or not, has literally changed the face of how we communicate. Half the baby products in my house were purchased by me and my husband because we saw advertisements on Instagram. Mostly because your phones are like constantly listening to you and you're all going to have like Instagram ads when you leave this room later on today. But also because... It sees what I'm looking at, and it sees what I'm liking, and the algorithm is putting other people's posts. Some of my dearest friends in the world, and I know this is gonna sound really strange to some of you, some of my dearest friends in the world are people that I have met through Catholic Twitter and Catholic Instagram. Moms and youth ministers and priests that I have grown in relationship with because we've been able to communicate digitally. And I credit Kevin and Mike sitting in their apartment drinking bourbon, asking the right question to this revolution of connection of sharing, of posting things that sometimes we don't really need to see. But what happened when they asked the question, when they flipped the narrative, why do people like it, as opposed to why are people walking away? What would it look like if in our parishes, in our dioceses, in our families, in our homes, amongst the communities, amongst the people that we're working with, what would it look like if we flipped the question? Rather than pulling our hair out and saying, why aren't young people showing up to this awesome Bible study? Why aren't more people signing up to help with the altar society? Why aren't more people coming to mass and actually engaging, but instead they look like bumps on a log? Right? Instead of asking why not, maybe we should turn to the people that are there already and have a conversation with them about what makes them stay, about who they fell in love with, about why they keep returning week after week, day after day, why you showed up and gave your Thursday, Friday, and Saturday to sit around and talk about Jesus. I know some of you were forced to be here. Blink twice if you need help. But, but we need to have honest conversations about what keeps people in the church rather than just pull our hair out about why they walked away. Now, I'm giving you that whole, like, we need to ask the positive question, but I do want to paint a landscape for a second about where we are in the church right now and where we are statistically, especially with millennials and Gen Zers. I always like to throw up this graphic to tell people the generation differences, right? You fall into one of these. We've got our baby boomers, 46 to 60. We've got our Gen Xers, everybody forgets about you, 61 to 80. We've got our Gen Y millennials from 81 to 95, and then we've got Gen Z, born after 95. I personally prefer to expand the Gen Y up to like 97, 98. And then I like to say that there's going to be a little bit of a gap generation. Kids that were alive during 9-11 but don't really remember it. Millennials were defined by 9-11. That was the thing of our generation. That was kind of the moment where we realized maybe the world is not as safe as we thought it was. I think Gen Z 
is going to be defined by the 2016 election and by the commentary that was happening constantly in the news. This is not a political statement, but can you imagine being a teenager constantly hearing all the things that everybody was saying about one another for basically two years? And you're in Iowa, I know you heard it, right? The cycle has begun all over again. So I think the vitriol that we experienced in that election cycle is going to be hugely defining for Gen Z. And I want to share with you some stats specifically about millennials and Generation Z. Let's start with millennials. And let's look at some statistics about what millennial Catholics believe, feel, and think about the church today. 14% of millennial Catholics are going to Mass on Sunday. 14%, which means by the time we get to my daughter's generation, that's going to be like 5%, because my generation's having the Gen 8 kids, and we're not going to church, so our kids sure as heck aren't going to go to church. By 2020, two and three millennials will have already disaffiliated from the church. They'll have started to walk away. 70% of unaffiliated millennials believe that the church is too concerned with money and power. Unaffiliated means that they're a person that has said, I used to be Catholic, I was Catholic, I was raised Catholic, but no longer are. 47% of affiliated millennials think that the church is too concerned with money and power. So 47% of millennials who say, I'm Catholic, are looking at their Catholic church and thinking their priorities are out of whack. They're mismanaging my money, they're mismanaging my funds. What just came out in the news the other day, I think that number is going to increase exponentially over the next couple of years. Let's keep going. So again, 27% are going to stay in the church by 2020, so that's kind of an abysmal, sad number, but here's one to kind of make us happy. 58% of millennials abstain from meat on Friday during Lent. So they're not going to mass, but they're eating fish fillets. Why? I don't think it was the McDonald's campaign. The only thing I can put together in my head is that despite the fact that there's not a desire to go to mass, despite the fact that they're not necessarily attached to the traditions, despite the fact that they probably disagree with some pretty big teachings, there is a cultural attachment to Catholicism. There is a desire to do something external that somehow connects them to the faith in which they were raised. 67% of unaffiliated millennials think that the church is too focused on rules. If they were to walk into the confirmation program I went into, they would have thought we were too focused on rules because all we were told to do was memorize the catechism in order of 10 commandments and beatitudes, gifts of the spirit, fruits of the spirit, and like, here's the order of the seven sacraments. You know how the catechism begins? God, blessed in his divine life, wants a relationship with you, but we don't articulate that. So of course the ones that walked away think that we're way too concerned with rules, but you know, 47% of the affiliated millennials think that we're too focused on rules too. This is not your fault. I mean, it's a little your fault, but this is not, <laughs> this is not on one individual person. It's not on one individual bishop. It's not on one individual program that wasn't implemented well. It's a systemic problem because for a really long time, we just assumed that well, Catholic is what we do, so therefore Catholic is who we are. Catholicism is not what we do. Catholicism is not who we are unless we have the relationship with the person that the whole religion's about, which is Jesus Christ. And so when we have articulated what we're supposed to do and what we're not supposed to do, rather than the person that we're doing those things for, they walk away. They walk away. Barna, you should all go download the Barna study on Gen Z and millennials. It's like 40 bucks, get your pastor to pay for it. Sorry, fathers, it's great. And Barna did some research that said this, nearly half of Christian millennials think that sharing one's faith is wrong. Because I don't want to offend you. I don't want to overstep my bounds. 
I don't want to shove my religion in your face, probably because I don't want you to shove yours in mine either. 47%. That's outpacing non-believers who think that. But yet those same Christian millennials think that knowing Jesus is the best thing that could happen to anyone. So yeah, I love Jesus, but I'm not going to tell you about him. Yeah, I love Jesus, and I love my faith, and I read my Bible, and I believe that Christ saves, but, but that's my thing, because God forbid I share that with you. So not only do we have an identity problem, we have an articulation of our identity problem. The statistics continue. If we were to look at a snapshot of how Gen Z identifies, 9% of Gen Z are engaged Christians, 33% are churched, 16% are unchurched, 7% on other faith, 34% no religious affiliation whatsoever. Oftentimes, the no religious affiliation means spiritual, not religious. I can find Jesus in nature, which is true, but you also need to go to Mass. Right? We, we are seeing a change in the demographics of how Gen Zers are identifying. And when asked, when Gen Z was surveyed and non-Christians were asked, what keeps you from the church? Here's what they said. 29% have a hard time believing that a good God can allow suffering. So they have a mental hang-up about hardship. 23% Christians are hypocrites. Sometimes I tend to agree. 20% science refutes too much of the Bible. So we have a faith and reason thing that we need to overcome. 15% too many injustices in the history of Christianity. These are the things keeping non-Christians from coming to us. 12% I used to go to church, but it's not important anymore. We can keep going with some of these stats. The reason that church attendance isn't important, 59%, the church is not relevant to me personally. 48%, I find God elsewhere. 28%, I can teach myself what I need to know. 20%, the church is out of date. 12%, the rituals are empty. If Gen Zers aren't coming, they're going to fall into one of those categories. If you've had conversations with your kids, your grandkids, your aunts, not your aunts, your nieces, your nephews, your cousins, neighbor kids, young people that are signed up for your confirmation programs but really don't care to be there, Young people that used to come before they had a car, but now they have a car, so they have a sense of freedom, so they want to keep coming back. Young adults who go off to college, they have one professor that tells them that God's not real, so now all of a sudden they have a philosophy degree, and everything they learned throughout that, up to that point no longer matters, right? They're following into these categories. They somehow hit one of these markers. Now, we can look at some of the research and studies done by the Going, Going, Gone study that kind of categorizes the six common reasons for disaffiliation. You've probably all seen this stuff, so I'm just going to throw it up on the board, and I'm going to tell you, I was a teacher, if you can't tell. An event, a series of events, processes of questionings triggered doubt, right? Something happened that made me doubt the faith in which I was raised. Cultural secularization led some to see faith and religion as options. Has anybody watched the show Master of None on Netflix with Aziz Ansari? It's a sitcom. I'm warning you now, it's a little risque and raunchy at different parts, so don't go watch it with your kids in the room, but one of the episodes, season two, episode one, I believe, is all about his father's religion. His father is a faithful Muslim, prays five times a day. The dad believes that his son is continuing to practice his faith. And Aziz looks at his dad and just straight up says, no, I don't practice that. I don't have to believe anything to be a good person. Right? There's this understanding that I don't need God and I don't need religion to get to heaven if heaven even exists. I can just be a good person. It's moral therapeutic deism. Right? Like God makes me feel good when I need him, but I can just ignore him otherwise because I can just do my own thing and be nice. Nice is not a virtue. Nice doesn't get you to heaven. Religion was forced on them as children, and they don't want to do the same. Religion is now a choice. I was raised in a Catholic home. Daily mass was a norm in my family. My sister and I were involved in our youth group. I went to the University of Dallas, 
one of the most Catholic colleges in the country, and for the first six weeks of my college career, I skipped Mass. Not because I didn't love the Eucharist, because I just, you know, I could. My mom wasn't there to wake me up for 9 a.m. There was a great brunch in the school cafeteria. We'd hang out in the cafeteria till like one, you'd go to the library, you'd work, you'd be then hanging out at the cat bar, drinking coffee, hanging with your friends, you'd look down at your watch, next thing you know, it's seven o'clock, you missed the last chance mass at 6.30, oh well, I'll go next week. I love Jesus, but for some reason, this priority of mass was no longer in my head because there was this, I don't have to do that anymore. It wasn't until my mom called me and said, hey, I've been meaning to ask you, how are Father J.D.'s homilies? That that good Catholic guilt started to seep in and I realized, I can't lie to my mom about a Dominican's homilies that I haven't heard, so I'm going to have to go and start hearing them. And I obviously came back full force. Living a moral life doesn't require religious belief. Disaffiliation, brought a sense of happiness, relief, or freedom. Belief is based on rational arguments, and if those aren't presented, they leave. I'd put one more up there, and I think it's the lack of welcome that a lot of people feel in the church, especially in young adults. A lot of young adults move away after college or they come back home after they've been gone for four years or when they get to college, they're trying to find a parish community, maybe on campus or off campus, who knows. But for some reason, I think something happens between the ages of like 20 and 25 where you don't want to be treated like a kid anymore. You're not a high schooler. You don't want high school youth ministry, but you're also not going to go hang out with the altar society and put plants in front of the altar, right? Like you want something for your age demographic because accompaniment for you looks different. And they walk into these churches, they come into these parishes, and there's nothing for them. There's mass, and that is everything, but there's not people there who seem to care that they're there. My husband's sister, Sarah, moved to Nashville, Tennessee when she was 22 years old. She got her marketing degree from King's College, a Catholic university in Scranton, Pennsylvania. I like the office, that's why we love it so much, that's where he's from. And then she moved down to Nashville to go to work for CMA. She worked for the CMA Music Awards. Now she works for Big Machine Records and she helps represent Taylor Swift, which is really great. We got backstage passes once. She's my favorite sister-in-law in the world. But she moves to Nashville, Tennessee, and she finds a parish. She was raised Catholic. Her mom's like Polish Catholic, and Polish Catholics are like hardcore Catholics, right? So she goes to this parish, and she goes consistently for like four weeks in a row. She sits in the same spot. She introduces her to people, and that was it. She was going to Mass, but she was trying to meet people within the parish community, and like, she just wasn't meeting anybody. And it's not necessarily on her to go meet those people. It's on the people who go to that parish every single Sunday who recognize somebody new that need to turn to her and say, we're so happy you're here. We don't, we don't recognize you. What are your interests? Where are you from? Why don't you come over and have dinner with my family, and we can show you around Nashville a little bit? Are you interested in doing this, that, or the other? What's your favorite Bible verse, right? Like, I'm not suggesting that's what you ask complete strangers that walk into your parish. Like, wait a few weeks before you ask that one. But she felt so isolated and ignored and unwelcome in the community. And so she stopped going. And she didn't go for a few weeks. And it wasn't like this conscious decision. It was just more of a, I'm uncomfortable there. Nobody seems to want me there. Nobody seems to like that I'm there. The priest's homilies weren't particularly good, so she wasn't attached to going to that one. She tried to find another parish that didn't, you know, she just, she couldn't find a place to fit. And a lot of people are going to sit out there and go, well, but the Eucharist is worth making yourself fit. Yeah, guys, but people have to know that they're cared for in order to believe and understand that what's in front of them matters and is important. Dr. Seuss puts it perfectly. Somebody doesn't care how much you know until they know how much you care. She didn't feel cared for. She didn't feel like anybody wanted her in the building. 
And then a coworker of hers invited her to go to Crosspoint, which is one of the most dynamic and engaging non-denom churches in Nashville, Tennessee, right across the street from the NFL football stadium. They have golf carts in the parking lot to drive you up to the front door. You're greeted with an iPad and a cup of coffee and a coupon to get something from the bookstore, right? As secular and Protestant as it comes, and she walked into the front door, and they knew her name when she came back the next week. And she was put into a small group within the first 24 hours of being a registered member. And when her daughter was born last May, she made the decision to not have Emma baptized because she's not Catholic anymore. So her disaffiliation from Catholicism has effects on her child who is not baptized. We have got to do better about recognizing and acknowledging people who come into our churches that we don't know and people that have been there for 50 years. You have no idea what cross somebody is carrying, what burden a person is holding within their heart, what joy that they are bursting forth to share. Mass is not a fast food joint where we come in, get our Jesus, and walk away. It is supposed to be a five-star dining experience, five-star dining experience. And when I walk into a five-star restaurant, my waiter doesn't leave me alone, and it's annoying as hell. But that (laughs) waiter cares that I'm there. Do we care that the people are there? Do we know what's going on in their lives? Do we ask them questions about what's happening in their home? We shouldn't desire to have a hundred dynamic parish events a year. You should desire to have a hundred families that invite other families over to their homes for dinner because that's what's going to build the dynamic parish filled with believers who love Jesus because they love each other. We can keep looking at some of these statistics. We can keep looking at the reasons that they are or are not coming. Church-going teens think that 82% of the church is a place to find answers to live a meaningful life. Okay, that's good. That's encouraging. The church gives me answers. The church gives me purpose. 82% think that the church is relevant for my life. So these are the teens in the building. These are the young people who are coming every week. 77%. I can be myself at church. Good for you. We've made young people feel like their identity is important, that who they are is not something to be hidden or shunned. The people at church are understanding and tolerant. Right? I'd love to blast that out on Catholic Twitter. We're not bigots. We're understanding. We're tolerant. We're kind. We're loving. We also have to look at this, that 36% believe that the people at church are hypocritical, that 27% think that the church is not a safe place to express doubts, that 24% think that the faith and teachings I encounter at church seem rather shallow. It's not that they're too hard. It's not that it's hard to swallow what the church teaches about human sexuality. It's just that we haven't done a very good job articulating what the church teaches about human sexuality. 17% think that the church seems too much like an exclusive club, that I don't have a place to fit in that building because that person sits in that pew every single week, and if I dare to even go close to it, she's going to shoot me a death glare across the pew. (laughs) We have got to do better, especially because Francis told us Again, the gospel asks us, its message of closeness invites us to encounter and exchange, to accept each other seriously, to journey together, and to share without fear. Accompaniment is journeying with another person side by side along a stretch of road, sometimes for a brief period of time, sometimes for a lifetime. Kara Powell, out of Fuller Theological Seminary in Southern California, wrote a book called Sticky Faith. You should all download it. It's an incredible book. And in Sticky Faith, she gives a statistic that young people that stick with their faith, that stay in the church, had five adults that invested in their life. It's not one to five. It's five to one. 
And I'd be willing to bet that most of you in this room could name your five. Name the five people that walked with you on the journey, who stayed close to you, who journeyed with you, who let you ask your questions, who let you dig through the muck and the dirt of your life, and they were unafraid of what you found and were there with you in the midst of it, who accompanied you because they recognized that being close to you would bring you closer to Jesus Christ. When it comes to the generation of young people in the church today, millennials and Gen Z, we have to recognize that our answers to their questions matter that companionship is key, and that we as a church have to keep people rooted in what makes us distinctly and uniquely Catholic. When there are questions that are brought up, we can't make up the answers. Some of us do that, right? Some of us get nervous that a young person's going to think that we're stupid, and so we just kind of bumble around and we come up with something, and then it ends up being wrong, and they can Google it and find out that it's wrong. And so because we're scared of maybe hurting our ego or because we have a sense of pride, we give answers that, that aren't necessarily fully correct or we skirt away from giving the answer because we're scared that it's going to scare them. Answers matter. And learn this phrase, I don't know, but I'll find out. Companionship, especially intergenerational companionship. You don't just need young people on your core team. You need some old people too. You need some middle-aged Gen Xers that we all forgot about. You need some people that can show the breadth of life experience to a young person who encounters them in a small group conversation, encounters them when they go on retreat, has a conversation with them when they walk into the church parish. And we have to root them in the sacramentality of our Roman Catholic Church. The best thing that I ever did as a parish youth minister was an event called Jesus and Java. It was super simple. 6.30, and, 6:30 morning mass on Tuesdays and Fridays, we'd meet We'd all go to the mass at the parish, and then there was a little CC's coffee shop right around the corner. And Monsignor Gaddy would give me his credit card, and I'd pick up the bill. Free coffee and free donuts for any of the young people that went to mass and then came over to the coffee shop. We had 20 people come to the first one that we did. I only advertised it with 24 hours notice. They showed up in droves week after week after week, college students, high school students. Some of the parishioners who were always there at 6.30 morning mass were confused because all of these teenagers kept showing up. And so finally, I just told them, you can come too. It's on Monsignor Gaddy. It's not from a youth ministry budget. It's from the parish budget. And they would come. Rooting them first in the encounter at Mass, encountering Jesus Christ in the Eucharist, encountering the body of Christ in the pews together, listening to the word proclaimed. Monsignor's homilies were on point on those days because they knew he had a more captive audience in those teenagers. And then we'd go and we'd hang out. There's no agenda. I didn't pull my catechism out and open it up and start talking about point 364. Don't tell me what 364 is. I'll look it up later. Right? But we would just hang out and we'd talk. Sometimes we'd talk about TV shows. Sometimes we'd talk about vacations. Sometimes we'd talk about what was going on with their friends. Of the young people that came to that first one, five of them are on their pilgrimage to Rome right now. They got to see the Pope on Wednesday. They chose for their senior trip to be a pilgrimage to the Vatican. And I don't think it was just because they got free coffee out of me on Tuesdays and Fridays during that summer. I think it's because they felt attached and connected to a community in the church. Two of the young people that were coming on a regular basis, they were college students, they're now happily married and expecting their first child. They met at Jesus in Java. I always like to look at their kid and be like, I helped that. You know, that, was, <laughs> that was me, right? Another soul exists in this world because I paid for their coffee and their donuts. We have got to recognize that rooting young people first in relationships, rooting each other in relationships, and walking with young people through their questions and through their experiences in life 
is what keeps them attached. And if you think that this is just a bunch of malarkey, if you think I'm just making this up, if you think this is just some wide-eyed millennials vision of what the church should look like, no, I'm getting this out of the Gospels. Right? This is exactly what Jesus Christ did when he walked with these two disciples who have no identity on the road to Emmaus. You could go look up the Gospel of Luke chapter 24 and read a snapshot of what our ministries are supposed to look like in the church today. When Christus Vivit came out, the letter that Pope Francis wrote finishing all of the synod work, he references the final document from the synod fathers. And the final document from the synod fathers is built around the road to Emmaus and the three movements of the story. The movements of accompaniment in our parish, of walking alongside these young people who think that we're hypocritical, who think that our teachings are too shallow, who think that this is a place that's too exclusive, who aren't showing up because they don't quite understand what's so special about what we have. A one-on-one, face-to-face, dialogue conversation with somebody about why you love Jesus, of how Jesus Christ captivated your heart, of why you keep coming back to Mass week after week after week, about why you work for the church, why you serve your community. That one-on-one conversation is far more powerful than any talk I'm ever going to give on a stage. The work that you get to do face-to-face with the people that return week after week, year after year, that conversation and relationship and community is what plants the seeds within the hearts and minds of believers to recognize that the church is their home, that the church is for them, that the church is not this passive thing that exists, but is the dynamic living body of Christ of which they are a part. As Jesus walked with them on this road to Emmaus, as he, as he listened to them, as he asked them questions, and I'm sorry, we had to convert some of these slides over to PowerPoint, so some of them have gotten a little messed up. The first movement of the road to Emmaus is that he walked with them, right? Jesus Christ meets them on the road, and the way the story walks, like they're walking in what? We all know this. It's like the best biblical scholar line, right? How are they walking? In the wrong direction. They're going away from Jerusalem. All the activity and excitement happened there, and they're getting out of Dodge. They don't want to be there. They're scared. They're frightened. They're confused. They don't know what's happened. Jesus is gone. And so they're walking away on this road to Emmaus, and Jesus, I like to imagine, like pops out of the bushes, right? just like surprises them, like, hey guys, what are you talking about? And Jesus is walking with them, and he asks them that question. What are you talking about as you walk along the way? Accompaniment begins by asking good questions. If you're looking for a formula, if you're looking for a plan, a lot of us want programs. Here's your program. Copyright 2019, Archdiocese of Davenport. I almost said Dubuque, but that's only because that's where your bishop once was, and we had that conversation earlier. I was listening. So, (laughs) Archdiocese of Davenport, this is your pastoral plan for how to accompany old people, young people, middle-aged people, the newborn baby, and the man on his deathbed. We ask good questions. Good questions then leads to what? If you ask a question, don't be the kind of person that's just formulating your answer as they're talking, but you actually listen attentively to what they're saying. Jesus Christ listens to them as they explain to him their confusion and their fear. As they tell him, we don't know where he went. We don't, we don't know what's going on. As they tell him all of this activity and all of this movement and all this excitement, all of their confusion, Jesus doesn't jump in mid-sentence to try to correct them. He doesn't cut them off and say, oh, you idiots. He does that later on, right? He listens to what they say. 
In the final document from the Synod and in Christus Vivit, Pope Francis and the Synod Fathers talk about how listening is an act of humility. Listening allows us to approach another person with this docility of spirit. And we're not just trying to gather information. We're not just trying to listen to them so that we have a bunch of you know, information in our, in our back pockets that we can then use later on in conversation, but we're building relationship with them. Trust is formed. Right? I listen to them, and I gain their trust, and they then get to listen to me. And that conversation that happens, that ping-pong back and forth, that dialogue that begins, it's what we do with God. It's what we're called to do with one another. So we ask these really good questions, and I, I want to go back to the good questions thing. A good question is a question that sparks deep conversation, and what does everybody like to talk about? Themselves. So when you have a conversation with somebody, you don't just go, how are you? Right? With young people, you find like a hook. What was the best thing that happened to you this week at school? Right? What's something that you're scared of for your freshman year of high school? It's a huge transition from middle school to high school. You dig deep and you find questions that get the wheels turning in their head. And even the most introverted and quiet of kids, which was me, I know that's hard to believe, but I don't really like people, but as an introverted, quiet kid, I would talk about myself because I know myself. And that is a level playing field. You enter into their space. You don't try to drag them into yours. And then you listen to them while you're there. So Jesus listens attentively to what they say. And then he gives the smackdown, right? As they're walking along the way, the next movement of the road to Emmaus, and I hope that the clicker works, right? their eyes are opened. What does Jesus say to them after they finish talking? After he's listened to everything that they had to articulate incorrectly, might I add? What does Jesus say? You fools! And he starts to give them the greatest Bible study the world has ever known. Jesus Christ begins to tell the story of Moses, of the prophets. He tells salvation history. He unpacks everything that's just happened. And he's doing it without reservation or fear. He's gained their trust because they've had this conversation, because he's listened to what they have to say. And then he begins to articulate to them the truth that can change their lives. So many people think that accompaniment is walking with somebody in the wrong direction. Yeah, you walk with them in the wrong direction, maybe for a little while, and then you grab them by the scruff of their neck and you bring them back into the right direction. And they're not scared of you grabbing them by the scruff of their neck because they trust you and they know you're not going to lead them astray. That relationship that was formed allows you to then guide them to the truth, to walk with them for a stretch of the journey, and then they recognize that you help them figure out that path. We cannot be unafraid to articulate what we believe. And let me tell you, boots on the ground at these conferences across the country with young people, they don't want fluff and nonsense. They long for the truth that we teach. They're getting all this junk from the world. They look to us for goodness, truth, and beauty. They're looking to us to articulate the way, the truth, and the life. They don't want us to just placate their base desires. They don't want us to just tell us, do whatever you want and Jesus will forgive you later. They don't want us to conform to the world. They want us to tell them right from wrong. They want us to articulate good and evil. They want us to show them how to walk the straight and narrow path so that we can enter through the narrow gate. They long for us to teach them the truth. I think sometimes we're the ones that are scared to do it because we don't want to be offensive. We don't want somebody to get mad at us. We're scared that we're going to end up on the news. I don't know if you've been paying attention to what's going on, but we're all going to end up on the news probably within the next 50 years because we are in a fight for our lives as Catholics today. Just go look at what's happening in California with the bill to get priests to tell people what's going on in confession. The fight's coming. 
Are we going to run from it? Or are we going to face it boldly with young people who are armed with the truth because we taught it to them? Jesus Christ teaches them this truth boldly, and then he stays with them. He doesn't just drop all these truth bombs and then go, all right, peace out, see you later. I'm headed back you know, to the tomb so I can get some sleep before I go find the next people. No, he has a meal with them. He eats with them. He spends time with them. They're, they're listened to what he had to say. They're shaken to their very core. And then Jesus Christ doesn't just abandon them. So many times when we walk with people on a stretch of journey, and, and I see this a lot with marriage prep and RCIA, and I've got, a, you know, I've got a, a bug in my bonnet about marriage prep. We walk with married couples for six weeks to the biggest sacrament of their lives. They literally have to start living with another human being. And by the way, they weren't sleeping together before, hopefully. So like lots of changes happen in their lives. They get married and then it's like, all right, good luck. Hopefully we never have to see you in the chancery building. Right? We accompany them up to a certain point and then we abandon them. You know when marriage prep really needs to be happening? When you have your first kid and you're sleep deprived and you hate your spouse. Right? You know when marriage prep really needs to happen? When one of you loses your job and you don't know how you're going to make ends meet. You know when marriage prep really needs to happen? When you hit that fifth year and you, look, you wake up one day and you're like, I, what did I do? And you need another couple there to walk you through those tough times. Accompaniment doesn't just happen during a season to get to a sacrament. And that's what we've done. We've done sacramental accompaniment. We have not done discipleship. We have not done let's live life together to encounter Jesus Christ. What would it look like if the second graders who are getting their first communion and their first reconciliation have the same religious ed teacher all the way through confirmation? And I get that that's a huge commitment I'm asking from people. But what would it look like if that adult was consistently present in their formation? Newsflash, they have parents, so hopefully that parent is present to them in that continued formation, but what would it look like if our parish is invested in the lifetime of a person and not just shuttled them through all these different age transitions with a different staff person at every turn that handles them during this phase of life? What would it look like if we were truly present to our people? Fathers, and I'm specifically speaking to the priests in the room right now, we need you to come to our houses for dinner. We want you to come be part of our families. My family vacationed with priests. We would take them with us so that we could have mass in the hotels and in the houses that we rented. And maybe that's because my mom does most of the priest taxes in our diocese. They felt a little obligated to do it. But, <laughs> but the relationship that I grew up with, there are priests in my diocese that are like brothers and second dads to me. I had nine priests and a bishop at my wedding. They weren't invited. They texted me and asked if they could come because they loved us. We need you to invest in our families so that we can then pour back into you. And I know you're tired and I know your schedules are busy, but I also know you're lonely. I also know you get isolated. I also know that sometimes you don't want to eat the meal that you cooked for yourself in the microwave and we can cook, right? I know that we need you just as much as you need us to be present to us so that we can then continue to be present to one another. After Jesus is present with them, what happens? Right, he disappears, the breaking of the bread, and, and Jesus, like ninja Jesus, he vanishes, and they recognize him and the breaking of the bread, and they realize that their hearts are burning within them, and then what do they do? They run back. They leave without delay. They go find other people to tell them what they just experienced. Accompaniment multiplies. I accompany you, and then you are empowered to accompany another, and it just continues to expand and to grow. Do you remember the movie, movie Pay It Forward, that really depressing Kevin Spacey movie from years ago? Right? I talk to one person, they talk to three people, those three people talk to three people, and it expands. 
These disciples are so encouraged by their encounter with Christ, they're so overwhelmed with love of Jesus that they have to go share it. They are unafraid to go announce it to the world. When we accompany people, when we walk alongside someone in life, as they face moments of transition, as they face moments of joy and pain, as they approach the challenges, as they ask questions about their faith, as they long to meet Jesus face to face, we become a companion and a mentor. At the precinct gathering, we wrote a letter. And in that letter, we included a paragraph about what qualities a mentor should have. What a person who walks alongside a young person should be like. What works. And those qualities of a mentor include being a faithful Christian who engages with the church and the world. We don't need us all to go become monks. We need to be in the world, boots on the ground, out there, articulating the gospel with our very lives. It's literally what they tell us to do at the end of Mass. Take it seriously. The mandate is placed upon our lives. Someone who constantly seeks holiness. If you work for the church, if you get a paycheck from a parish or a diocese, Jesus has become your job. And I'd be willing to bet that your prayer life is in the tanker sometimes. You, as an individual who serves the church in a professional capacity, have got to spend at minimum an hour in front of the Blessed Sacrament a week. That is not an optional thing. He is literally the source of life. If you are not plugged into him, you will fail. We have got to constantly be seeking to be intimate with the Lord so that we can articulate him to the world, to the people that we get to work with. Someone who's confident without judgment. Don't be jerks. When we articulate the faith, when we accompany another person, we know what we believe, we know what we teach, but we do so how? In charity, with love. Recognizing that they might not be completely ready for us to shove that truth down their throat just yet, but to slowly give them morsels of the truth so that they begin to understand and come to that understanding on their own through the power of the Holy Spirit. Someone who actively listens to the needs of young people and responds in kind. Let me say that again, actively listens to the needs of young people. If your young person is coming to you and saying, we need more time to pray, don't give them another talk. Put them in front of Jesus. If your young person is coming to you and saying, we need an opportunity to just get our energy out, start with an icebreaker. And if they're telling you, I don't get the point of that, maybe give some of them the opportunity to not do that. We need to listen to what they're saying and respond to their desires, respond to what they hope to see. Young people are protagonists. We're not just grabbing them by the neck and dragging them. Someone deeply loving and self-aware who recognizes his or her limits and knows the joys and sorrow of the spiritual journey. They know that you love Jesus. Holiness is attractive. They know that you have this love of the Lord and they want it. I heard it said in the introduction beforehand. I want what you have. I desire what I see you living. I want a part of that. Our accompaniment with them is an articulation of the life that we have lived in Jesus Christ. Every single one of us in this room has a mentor, has somebody that's walked with us a stretch of the road, has somebody who has answered our questions, who's shared their own life journey with us, who's, who's been able to, to help us grapple with. When I was a, a sophomore and a junior in high school, I had a massive crisis of, crisis of, of faith. In 2005, um, Hurricane Rita hit Lake Charles, Louisiana, and we were evacuated for seven and a half weeks 
I was convinced my house was going to be gone. And even though it was fine, it was a pretty huge weight that I was carrying as a junior in high school. School was completely put on pause. We were living with my grandparents. My mom's office had been flooded. My dad was still working down in Lake Charles because he worked for a bank, so he would come up to see us on the weekends. And it was just a really stressful time, really anxiety-ridden time, really, really hurtful time in my life. And so I, like many people that have disaffiliated from the faith, assumed that a good God could never have done something like this, so therefore God must not exist. And that's precisely what I said to the deacon, who was the academic administrator at my school, when he came in to do a Q&A with all of us after we got back to school in the end of October. And I tried to rip him to shreds. Tried to use every ounce of Google theological knowledge that I had in my head to destroy all of his years of education and training. And Deacon Glenn Bayou stood at the front of that classroom and took it. He took it. He listened, and after I was done, and after he was done, he said, Katie, why don't you come to my office after school, and we'll, we'll continue this chat. Thinking I was in trouble, it's kind of like my MO when any priest or bishop calls, right? Like, I'm in trouble. <laughs> I go to his office, and I sit down in front of his desk, and he said, would you like a cup of coffee? I'd never had coffee up to that point. It was a life-changing day. I said, sure, <laughs> and he brought me a cup of coffee, and we sat in his office for three hours. We had to call my mom twice to tell her that we weren't done yet. And we sat in that office and we talked. He answered every question I had and then some. He gave me book recommendations. He told me stories. I, I knew his wife. She'd worked at the school that I'd gone to beforehand. I knew Miss Rose. She was an incredible woman. And in the course of those three hours of conversation, it was the first time, and I'm sure there had been other people in my life up to that point, but as a, a punk junior in high school, it was the first time in my head that somebody saw me not as a nuisance, not as an annoyance, but as somebody who had questions about my faith, who wanted to know more about this Jesus stuff, and he wanted to help me understand it. He wanted to help me unpack that. I then asked him to be my confirmation sponsor. My mom and dad had kind of given me this ultimatum. You don't have to be confirmed, but you have to go to the classes. And so in order to go to the classes, you have to turn in the form with somebody's name on it as your sponsor. So I put his name down. He didn't even know. He got a phone call from the church office asking if he could send in their, his baptismal records. And he was like, you do know I'm a deacon of the diocese. Because <laughs> all I put was Glenn Bayou on there. I got confirmed, and he was my sponsor. It was one of the proudest moments of his life, he told me. He embodied and exemplified the qualities that a mentor should not lead young people as passive followers, but walk alongside them, allowing them to be active participants in the journey. They should respect the freedom that comes with a young person's process of discernment and equip them with the tools to do so well. A mentor should believe wholeheartedly in a young person's ability to participate in the life of the church. A mentor should be there to nurture the seeds of faith in young people, without expecting to immediately see the fruits of the work of the Holy Spirit. Deacon Glenn Vayu did that for me in my life. When I got confirmed and he stood there and he was beaming just as much as I was, when he proclaimed the gospel at my wedding, that's what that photo is from, when he came to the hospital to give Rose her first blessing because he was so excited that Tommy and I had finally had a little girl, and then when he passed away very suddenly last December and the church was filled with students and teachers, and parishioners from all around the state of Louisiana that he had invested in for years. Not long after he died, I was sitting on a plane, and I was exhausted and tired. I'd been traveling a lot, and I just kind of had this thought in the back of my head that standing on stages talking about Jesus doesn't matter. 
that this is pointless work, that nobody cares about airline miles, that funny stories are all that's remembered and nothing else. And I, I was tired and I was exhausted and I missed my kid and I just wanted to be home and I was headed to another event and I was just kind of in one of those moments of despair. And I'm staring out the window and all of a sudden I started thinking about Deacon Bayou. He died, he'd gone in for a routine procedure in Houston and he didn't wake up. It was a, a shock to the system. He was a perfectly healthy man. His wife was completely and totally devastated. Obviously his children were just in total shock. The whole community was stunned. He had planned out three months' worth of, of all the parish calendar for all the parish ministries because that's the kind of guy that he was. And nobody could take them, you know, nobody had the, the, the heart to go into the office and open up the binder to see his handwriting because it was such a shock to the system. And I just started thinking about him as I'm sitting on this plane, and it was the first time I started crying thinking about his death because I hadn't really allowed myself to process it. I was too busy, and, and we were in the process of buying a new house, and, and, and stuff was just in, in chaos. And I started thinking about the fact that I really hope he's in heaven. I know we have this belief and we have this hope and I know that he was a good holy man. I just, I, I hope he's in heaven. I hope he's rejoicing right now with the angels and the saints and he's staring at God and he's participating in the beatific vision which he would talk about all the time when he'd give his homilies. I just, I started fervently praying for him. And like out of nowhere, I had this, and I'm not gonna use the word vision because that sounds weird and as a Catholic, you know, I don't like those weird terms, but I had this thought, this image popped into my head of what heaven might be like for those of us that work for the church, that accompany and walk alongside young people and old people and everyone in between, that when we die, however suddenly or planned it may be, everybody's anticipating it and you've lived that good long life or out of nowhere you go in for the routine procedure and you don't come out, that when we who work for the church die and we get to heaven, that our heaven is getting to stand at the gates and every time somebody comes in, an angel leans over and says, you see that one? You helped them. You see that one? They're here because of something you said early on. You see him, you see her? You put up with their stupid questions. You were patient beyond patient when they'd come and complain. You were there when they rejoiced. You were with them when they cried. That one and that one and that one. You planted seeds and the Holy Spirit started to work in the garden that you helped till. If that's what our heaven could be like? Is it not so critically important then that we accompany and walk alongside every person we meet intentionally, recognizing that this task, paying attention to them, asking them good questions and listening attentively and proclaiming that truth boldly and staying with them through thick and thin, that that relationship we form with them could lead to intimacy and will lead to relationship with Christ. And we won't necessarily see the fruits of our labor today. We might not see them until the end of time. But how good that we are doing the work now. How good that we are there to nurture those seeds of faith in the young and in the old, in every different ministry that we get to work in, in the ways that we uniquely get to do it. Thank you for the work that you do. Thank you for the effort, for the time, for the low pay, for the long hours, for the frustrations, and for the joys. Thank you for tilling those seeds because this church needs it now more than ever. The stats prove it. The future of the church needs it. Know that I will be praying for you. Know that the people who might not be grateful now will be grateful for you in the future. 
And know that the rest of this weekend is for you to invest and to learn and to continue growing in this practice of ministry, which is, as Pope Francis called it, the most essential task of the church today. Let's end with a quick prayer. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time together. I ask that you continue to open the hearts and minds of these workers in your vineyard, that you give them a docility of spirit, that you give them an openness of mind, that you give them a willingness to trust. Mother Mary, we ask that you wrap us in your mantle and lead us ever closer to the heart of your Son as we pray together. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.